36 and a half years ago, Susan and I uh, had always and forever sung at our wedding, but it wasn't that one. Um, some of you will get it. Thanks for the opportunity to be able to share with you this morning. I appreciated Pastor Scott reaching out to me even before we moved to Illinois, and it's been good to connect with Pastor Scott and Pastor Megan. We, my goal today is not to preach as I normally do. I mean, Pastor Scott has a sermon for us all, but I've been encouraged to share for us some words of Dr. King in the context of our Christian faith. I also want to take the moment to acknowledge the awesome book by your own Ed Gilbreth that discusses Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which I strongly and highly recommend. I confess that I'm frustrated at the current divided state of Christianity in America, and I also know that our image of Dr. King has been tamed over the years, painting him as some idealist with dreams of a utopian society, but we tend to minimize or maybe even ignore the fact that he agitated Christians, particularly white Christians, during his lifetime. I mean, don't forget, he was assassinated. I was raised to go to Sunday school, then to stay for the long three-hour, yes, three-hour church service. But despite my stellar church attendance, for many years I was unprepared to answer any questions related to why God would allow human suffering or even if God existed at all. And I know that some African Americans reject Christianity or even doubt if there is a God, and they have those, doubt, those doubts in light of slavery and America's legacy of oppressing or at least discriminating against anyone who isn't white. If people truly believe in God, how could they do such horrendous things to fellow human beings? And that's a fair question to ask as we approach the MLK holiday because Martin Luther King was the Reverend Dr. King doing what he did because of his faith in God. So I imagine all of us have questions about the existence of God at some point or another, and the issue of human suffering complicates matters. I remember a fellow student asking my ninth grade history teacher when I was back in in junior high school if she believed in God. And I don't recall exactly how the question came up, but I recall my teacher, who was Jewish by heritage, questioned the existence of God in front of us. She asked, where was God when six million Jews were slaughtered? And we could ask similarly. Where was God when the ships left the west coast of Africa across the Middle Passage? Where was God when slave owners went to church on Sunday but beat their slaves on Monday? Where was God when after slavery black people were terrorized by lynching? Where was God when science, religion, and the justice system conspired to discriminate, denigrate, and subjugate? If we think that God is good and we hear people of faith say it all the time, then it's reasonable to ask, Where was this good God when people were hurting and killing other people? In his book, Strength to Love, the Reverend Dr. King writes, and please excuse the lack of inclusive language that was common back then, but he writes this. At times, other forces cause us to question the ableness of God, the stark and colossal reality of evil in the world, what Keats calls the giant agony of the world. Ruthless floods and tornadoes that wipe away people as though they were weeds in an open field. Ills like insanity plaguing some individuals from birth and reducing their days to tragic cycles of meaninglessness. The madness of war and the barbarity of man's inhumanity to man. Why, we ask, do these things occur if God is able to prevent them? This problem, namely the problem of evil, has always plagued the mind of man. I I would limit my response to an assertion that much of the evil which we experience 
is caused by man's folly and ignorance and also by the misuse of his freedom. Beyond this, I can say only that there is and always will be a penumbra of mystery surrounding God. I just find that awesome. A penumbra of mystery. You youngins look up penumbra. What appears at the moment to be evil may have a purpose that our finite minds are incapable of comprehending. So in spite of the presence of evil and the doubts that lurk in our minds, we shall wish not to surrender the conviction that our God is able. Perhaps a way forward in thinking about the reality of God is to consider how God responds in the face of injustice. Rather than God magically stopping people from doing evil, he often lets us do precisely what's in our hearts. But then we see how God shows up to bring justice. Dr. King also writes this in Strength to Love. Let us notice also that God is able to subdue all the powers of evil. In affirming that God is able to conquer evil, we admit the reality of evil. Christianity has never dismissed evil as illusory or an, or an error of the mortal mind. It reckons with evil as a force that has objective reality. But Christianity contends that evil contains the seed of its own destruction. History is the story of evil forces that advance with seemingly irresistible power only to be crushed by the battling rams of the forces of justice. There is a law in the moral world, a silent invisible imperative, akin to the laws of the physical world, which reminds us that life will work only in a certain way. The Hitlers and the Mussolinis have their day, and for a period they may wield great power, spreading themselves like a green bay tree, but soon they are cut down like the grass and wither as a green herb. So despite the evil in the world, God shows up in people who reject that evil and who desire to bring light, love, and justice and truth. The Reverend Dr. King was that kind of a messenger from God. So I invite you to take a chance on believing in God if you don't already. I, I have still a couple more quotes from Dr. King. Let us notice finally that God is able to give us interior resources to confront the trials and difficulties of life. Admitting the weighty problems and staggering disappointments Christianity affirms that God is able to give us the power to meet them. He is able to give us the inner equilibrium to stand tall amid the trials and burdens of life. He is able to provide inner peace amid outer storms. Dr. King speaks of Christianity, but that word has sadly become confusing. I don't think Dr. King would mind if I simply say that Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the power to face the trials of life. So my invitation is that we trust in Jesus because without him, life would be meaningless. The injustices of the world would serve no purpose. And as I invite us all to place faith in Jesus or continue on our journey with Jesus, I remind us that we're not alone in the journey. Together, we bring about transformation in the world, and we do so through the power of Jesus, not through human weapons. There's a part here of Dr. King's final message to the SCLC. He says this, And so I say to you today that I still stand by nonviolence, and I am still convinced that it is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for justice in this country. And the other thing is that I am concerned about a better world, I'm concerned about justice. I'm concerned about brotherhood. I'm concerned about truth. And when one is concerned about these, he can never advocate violence. 
For through violence you may murder a murderer, but you can't murder murder. Through violence you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate. Darkness cannot put out darkness. Only light can do that. Evil is real, but God is good. In fact, God is love. So the invitation I make today, using the words of Dr. King, is to trust in the God who is love. Love that we see evident in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So I close with one last quote from Dr. King from his sermon he preached in Montgomery, Alabama, called The Most Durable Power. I'm going to say briefly that I've not quoted I Have a Dream Yet. (laughs) And I won't. Because you'll hear it so much during the holidays, his birthday. And I wanted you to hear some things that you might not ordinarily hear. From the most durable power. I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to avoid, uh, achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God come what may. I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. Over the centuries, men have sought to discover the highest good. This has been the chief quest of ethical philosophy. I think I have discovered the highest good. It is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the being of God. He who hates does not know God. Amen. I got to rework some things. I built my whole sermon around that. I have a dream speech. I, uh, no, I didn't. No, thank you, Dennis. And thanks for reminding us that it was Dr. King's deep commitment to the living God, the real God, that compelled him um, to the very nature of justice, a sense of justice of what's right and wrong that points to God as well. I actually learned a lot from seminary professors over the years. Um, I went to two seminaries just to get it right, first of all, so I've had a lot of seminary professors. But one of the earliest things I learned was at my first seminary in uh, Denver, Colorado, from Dr. Vernon Grounds. And Dr. Grounds was president of the seminary at the time, but he was also one of my uh, professors in the counseling program there. And Dr. Grounds was quite outspoken. He would walk through the halls holding a cup up high and declare, the best ontological proof for the existence of a loving God is a cup of hot black coffee in the morning. Amen. You have an amen? Yeah. Case ontological is in the same category as penumbra for you. Um, ontology is the study of being, the nature of being and existence. Don't ask me to explain it any farther. But what he said about coffee, it works for me, the best proof. I understand, though, that that might not be the same solid proof that some need for the existence of a living God. Pondering the existence and nature of God. It happens in high philosophical circles. It happens in the very real and practical level of everyday life. And it happens in the minds of children. We hear it in letters that they have written, things like, God, I bet it's very hard for you to love all of the people in the whole world. There are only four people in our family, and I can never do it. Signed, Frank. (laughs) Or, dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother. Signed, Larry. Did you write that, Larry? No. (laughs) Okay. 
Those are funny. Some, some are funny, but they probe a little bit deeper. Listen to these two. Dear God, how come you did all those miracles in the old days, but don't do any now? Who names their kids Seymour anymore? But anyway, um, and then this one. Dear God, are you really invisible, or is that just a trick? Signed, Lucy. The problem for some of us is uh, we may write letters, we may lift up a question, but if God doesn't write back, we eventually wonder if he does, in fact, exist at all. I remember a time, and I know it was junior high, when I asked the question, God, are you there? I had grown up going to Sunday school as a churchgoer, but faith in God was not discussed much in my home. And I'm not sure what made me ask and inquire at that time of my life. I asked God to give me a sign to show up, uh, whatever it might be, and nothing happened. I don't remember at that point deciding necessarily to be an atheist, but I moved on to whatever my junior high boy mind moved on to next. We all have questions. We all have questions, but God is not intimidated by our questions. Whether we have written literal letters or not, we have all shot up prayers in the midst of struggles or dark times. God, are you there? And while he does not answer immediately in a letter or written in the sky, he does give us some indications of his presence. I want to summarize a few of the articles, uh, or a few of the, a few of the areas that we, we look at, some of the indicators that might help us. I'd summarize them in four areas of creation, morality, scripture, and then experience. We've all heard it said, or perhaps have said, I experienced a God outside in the beauty of the created world. Kayla wove a couple songs into our worship set this morning that speak of the, the Lord of creation, the beauty of the earth. And sometimes we look at things and say, there's got to be a God. We, we see pictures like this. It's just an amazing uh, photograph of the ocean and the sun. Or we look at a picture like this that is just amazing uh, of the stars on a dark night and the, and the, and the moon, the sliver of moon. Or this picture of Half Dome in Yosemite. I took that picture. Megan and I were in Yosemite in November and we stood on this little bridge and went, oh my goodness, this is for real. You could turn it upside down and it'll look the same. I've also been on the top of that thing before and the view from there is spectacular. Well, scripture tells us that actually is one of the ways that God reveals himself. Susan read for us from Psalm 19 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words, the ends of the world. And the Apostle Paul, as he's making his argument in his letter to the Roman church, says this in chapter 1 about people. He says, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Others would argue from the complexity of what we call a finely tuned universe. This is the the belief from the from the world of 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 physics and uh, physicists, I guess, that there are there are certain cosmological constants, certain certain conditions that allow life to exist and allow the, the universe to exist. And, 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 and they're in a very narrow range of values. If anything was slightly different, then, then life could not exist on earth and possibly other places. In fact, if they were off even a little bit, the universe would not, it would either implode or explode. That there's this finely tuned universe that keeps things in balance and allow life as it exists on earth to, in fact, exist. 
C.S. Lewis, who always has a wise word on these things, says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. Only he would think of that kind of thing. (laughs) A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. (laughs) The existence of desire points to something for the fulfilling of that. And we were made for this world. And so let's look into that a little bit. There's these arguments from creation. There's also arguments or indicators from the sense of morality, ethical indicators. There's the view that the sense of right and wrong, the reality of our conscience, points to a good creator, a loving creator. Something, somebody set the sense of right and wrong or justice in our heads and hearts. The Apostle Paul also speaks of this in Romans in chapter 2. He says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, the consciences, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. The laws of God written on our hearts and embedded in our consciousness. A little-known fact about me that you may not know, even though I blab about myself all the time up here, is that my undergraduate degree was in uh, anthropology. And uh, I don't really know why. I just took a lot of courses in the early part, and I thought, well, it looks like this will fall into a major. But seriously, uh, as I studied anthropology uh, and finished my degree at Wheaton College, it had to do with the whole area of cross-cultural communication, which was an interest of mine. But um, anyway, I majored in anthropology a long time ago. I remember some stuff, (laughs) maybe less than I learned from my seminary professors. But one thing I do remember, one thing I do remember is the near universality of an internal moral code and the existence of taboos that exist across nearly all cultures. Not to mention a near universality or the existence among almost every culture of some form of of spirituality, of some sort of reaching beyond this life. Nearly all cultures are aware of something, someone bigger than they are that brings shape to their culture, to their ethics, and to their practice of religion. When we speak of this internal moral code, we we think of justice, and Dennis pointed to this with Dr. King's quote about justice, which says, there is a, a law in the moral world, a silent, invisible imperative, akin to the laws of the physical world, which reminds us that life will only work in a certain way. Life will only work in a certain way, and this is this sense of, of justice. And at certain times in our culture and certain times in our individual experience, we, this sense of justice rears up and, and, and grabs a hold of this. It's a question being asked more and more now in, in the world that we're in. In the midst of this gridlock that we have in Washington, D.C. right now, there's, we're, we're troubled by a sense of justice in a sense on, on both sides of the aisle, if you will of what's right and what's wrong. What does the law stand for and what does compassion stand for? What's right, what's wrong? Part of it is this innate sense there has to be something that's right about this and something that's terribly wrong and broken about the way it is right now. And right here in our own city, 
the sense of justice has been troubled in, in recent weeks by the verdicts and the sentencing around Jason Van Dyke. And whether you fall on that and we honor those who serve in our police forces, there's some troubling that happens in this and the, and the justice sense screams and for some of us. I don't generally look at Facebook on Sunday morning, but I went on to wish Diana a happy birthday. And of course, then I see that I have a few notices. And I saw one from Michael Trout. Most of you know Michael Trout, who is the head of Wyman, our dear friends who uh, we have built a great partnership with. And Mike, who lives and works and reaches out, a white man, the only one reaching out in a community in North Lawndale to the young men. Michael says, one of my Wyman guys who maybe has been here. We know a lot of our, our Wyman guys have been on our camps and our retreats and our mission trips and in our church. He says, one of my Wyman guys received a Class X felony. Class X is just below first-degree murder. One of my guys received a Class X felony for the first time he was caught selling drugs with no prior criminal record. Jason Van Dyke received less for committing murder. And Michael asks, are there any white people out there that still argue our justice system is colorblind? Now, I'm not here to raise a political problem or distract us from, but for Michael, his sense of justice is struggling here. And these are the things that compel us to look to the answers and look to God and look to what is justice for all the people that God has created. And the fact that we all have this innate sense of right and wrong, and we may not always agree just what it is, but we know that there is a sense of right and wrong, is an indicator of a God who instilled a sense of morality and right and wrong in us. And then we move to Scripture. Now, the fact that Scripture is a test to the reality of God is not a very convincing proof for a skeptic who says, well, I could write a book that says something exists too. (laughs) But when we consider some of the historical data that comes along and corroborates scripture, or some of the archaeological data that points to uh, convincing proofs of certain th- the things that scripture said happened, did happen, but especially when we take fulfilled prophecy into consideration, there are more than just words on a page that point to the existence of God. Most compelling would be the prophecies of Jesus. We find many places in the New Testament where Paul or or Philip reasoned with the Gentiles working from the Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of the scriptures. That Jesus truly was the promised Messiah. That Jesus truly was and is the Son of God. Matthew, more than any of the other other Gospels, weaves fulfilled prophecies through his narrative. Matthew does this more liberally than any of the other Gospels. All the way from speaking of Emmanuel and the virgin birth, to Bethlehem as the birthplace, to his acts of healing, to the Palm Sunday entrance parade, and on to his betrayal of Jesus, Matthew is always saying, as it was prophesied in Scripture. But even with all of this, we cannot simply argue for and prove the existence of God with objective data. You can argue all you want from objective data, but it will not necessarily convince a person of the existence of God. But when we move beyond simply believing in God to putting our trust in God, which is what belief really means, or or when we move from believing in God to truly living with God, to actually living as if he exists in our lives and our experience and transformation in us points to his work as well. 
Now, some of this is objective of just saying, well, I really sensed that he was there. Or I really felt that God gave me comfort in this situation. I really could see that he was moving. It's all very subjective, but in some cases, it's very real. And when you see it in somebody else, it's very observable. When you see the impact and the working and the transformation of God. And so to creation, morality, and scripture, we must add experience. Experience. I mentioned earlier my questioning back in junior high and and how I got no answers. Well, actually, just two years later, a friend invited me to a thing called Young Life Club, where I heard more about Jesus than just the stories that I'd learned in rather sporadic attendance at Sunday school. I learned about Jesus, and I learned that he was alive and present, and I learned that I could know him and experience him moving in my life. And in March of my sophomore year of high school, I made a commitment to follow Christ and trust him. I have experienced him moving in my life. There have been drier seasons when I haven't. And yet I know through my experience. And so I, I, I really feel that my questioning, and it didn't come together until I was preparing the sermon, by the way, my questioning in junior high, he answered. It just took him a couple of years. <laughs> in the wonders of his timing and meeting this friend who invited me. And of course, in my role as pastor, I've seen him move and work and others bringing transformation and hope. Just this week, I was on the phone with a member who was just kind of reveling in some of the changes that they've experienced lately and marking it as as God's intervention in their life and, and their growth, almost giddy laughing with some of the wonderful changes and the connections that this community have meant to them and the transformation that God has brought to their life. Yes, this community has impacted this person. I observe it. I can see it. I can hear it. Sadly, on the other side, I have talked to a young person that I know pretty well who has walked away from faith, walked away from God. And my response to that was I could not help but feel actually sad and and even a little bit guilty that they have not observed that kind of change in others around them. For this person, there's a sad lack of evidence of transformation and change through the lives of believers. Now, if you are skeptical or unsure and unpersuaded, I know I cannot convince you with the facts. But I do invite you to explore and to seek and not just to believe that God is there. And maybe belief in God is simple for you. It's been there. It's always been there. You have no doubt. But to take that step of going another step deeper to actually live as if God, or live because God is real. And to allow him to work this kind of transformation in your life. And let him bring a transformation that not only means means a more fulfilling life for you, but is a life that then begins to turn outwardly more and more often, that others would see that transformation and be drawn to the living God themselves. To be changed and to care deeply about God, but also to care deeply for others who are far from him. Is there a God? I cannot prove it with my words, but I can definitely say yes in my own experience, and I pray in yours as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are there, that even as I speak these words of prayer, I do not believe they bounce off the walls or the ceiling, but go directly to your throne and to your presence and to your heart, your heart that beats for your people, your heart that longs for people to come to you. 
your heart of justice that longs for broken things to be made right as people first are made right in Jesus and then work together to make things right in the world. Lord, I pray for my sisters and my brothers this morning. Lord, that you would challenge us to go deeper than just, yes, I believe, to living it and walking with you, allowing your transforming work in our life that our experience and our lives might reflect who you are. And we ask this and pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.